This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. At Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning. Center inside the Melton Law Law with 50 years of experience is the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. Melton Law won't back down. And, of course, crime prevention protects the Warthog uh, Man Command Center, Manly Command Center, 24-7, 365. Worry less with crime, with crime prevention. And contact him at CPSA. And, of course, our uh, Maurice T. McDaniel, who sponsors our mug shots and have 45,000 views a month just to see where the bad guys are and who they are. So we are scheduled to uh, connect here shortly with uh, a regular guest of the show, Phil Kirpin, who uh, is the president of the American Commitment. The American Commitment uh, studies issues uh, in a think tank in D.C. that is of concern to us who are all about fiscal responsibility and clear thinking and accurate reports about what is happening. So uh, we'll, we'll, we've got a scheduled meeting with him coming up. And after we get him on, uh, we'll probably later on open, uh, turn on the open uh, uh, phone line, see how that goes with our guest. But we're scheduled to talk with him and we're scheduled to talk about taxes and inflation and all the business that's going on that have got Biden's numbers as low probably as any president's numbers have ever been uh, down in the uh, mid to high 30 percent of the nation wants him back or even wants him now. But the frustrating thing is, what do you do? Uh, it's uh, how do you how do you how do you deal with a guy? Um, there have been some people who have even said that we're close to him. We do see him uh, once in a while. That he doesn't understand cause and effect, or um, seems to be losing his place. But the best insurance uh, for himself staying in office, and Kamala Harris, who is busy just uh, ranting and raving about women's rights as if there were some right to womanhood in the Constitution. It's the perversion coming. It's, it's, a, it's an ill-conceived, deliberately ill-conceived rhetoric that's coming out of the mouths of the over-office gang that is setting the uh, nation into a divisive kind of uh, state here. And it's not, it's not good. So um, we've, we've got to do what we can do, and we're going to try to keep you informed and as best we can about uh, what is, uh, yeah, Plantation Mark Gasoline is now higher at the refinery than diesel. Well, um, diesel is the one that's really hurting the trucker. And um, I just, you know, I'm going to get into this while we're waiting on on, on Phil. Um, I think this electric vehicle thing is going to crash. Uh, what they don't tell you is it takes energy to create the electricity to electric vehicle. And meanwhile, the, the woke, um, I guess the woke influence has um, affected the automobile industry and they, they're afraid not to build some sort of electric car. Even here locally, we've got a place where there's anticipation, there's all these electric charging pumps. Um, so the problem is, according to Alicia Finley, who's written about this, that uh, you know, this, this ever-ending parade of electric vehicle startups that um, multi-billion dollar valuations and all, um, most of these never have sold a single car. Um, they're fueled by cheap credit and vehicle subsidies. And um, this notion that we can uh, all of a sudden uh, whip-like change out of a fossil fuel economy to electric cars and get gas off the road still doesn't uh, deal with the fact that the electricity has to be produced by probably fossil fuels in order to 
keep the um, uh, demand. So the Democrats, is, you know, they have found this, this platform that they can now use. It has to replace gasoline-powered vehicles well, with these supposedly climate-friendly electric vehicles. Um, but, you know, this is such a complicated system. Um, China, for example, which supposedly is the leader in electric vehicle production and exports. And, you know, everything is made in China because there's cheap labor in China. And so, you know, we're intertwined with China, even though militarily we act as if we're rattling sabers at each other. But more, we're more inextricably bound with, to China than will ever be, if at all, with Russia, whereas Europe is inextricably bound with Russia. And uh, so those, those are kind of the power systems we got right now. But China uh, uh, has been aggressive in setting production quotas for these electric vehicles and giving generous subsidies. Um, but um, uh, the, it has not been all um, coming up roses in China. Uh, there's been reckless investments and disorderly efforts and um, oversupply and anticipation of has been exaggerated, even with the political uh, kind of branding and urgency that seems to be everywhere in the media these days. The uh, uh, Some 200 Chinese uh, startups have launched in the chase for government subsidies. It's all about government subsidies. You see, where are the government subsidies coming from? They're coming from a Democrat Congress or coming from a Democrat uh, a kind of uh, 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 power behind it all. I see Phil's checking in and I'm going to ask his mind on all this in just a moment while he uh, logs in with us. But uh, the, all these electric car manufacturers, with possibly with the exception of Telsa, are struggling. And basically the analysis is there's too much investment chasing too little demand. Good morning, Phil. Good morning, Ward. Sorry I'm a few minutes late. Well, I was able to talk talking about something. Uh, we're, you know, I've got you down as taxes and inflation today. But while we were waiting to connect, I, I got into a discussion about um, this electric car fiasco. And um, geez, I think it's a big hoax, Phil. I'll just opinionate, opine on that right now because we still got to supply the energy through fossil fuel and the, the, the electric car production would not even be possible without heavy government subsidies, which is all very suspicious to those who are suspicious of government and particularly government subsidies. So I don't know if you want to merge in with that discussion here and blend in what you're talking about, if it fits at all. Definitely. Um, you know, the we've got a big problem with the electric vehicle demands of this administration because, uh, first of all, the demand isn't really there. Uh, most people still want an internal combustion vehicle. But the materials are pretty scarce also. So we've now got a pretty severe lithium shortage, which you need for the batteries and the price has skyrocketed through the roof. You need cobalt, you need a lot of other rare earth elements. Um, and you know, a lot of these things we could mine in the United States if we wanted to, but try getting a permit for a new mine in the United States. It'll probably take you 20 years. And uh, most of the supplies of these materials uh, are controlled by China now. They're not mostly in China, they're mostly in Africa, but China has secured the supplies. And so, you know, if you try to make this case that, well, we're gonna get off of dependency on uh, oil and then we won't be uh, vulnerable to supply shocks, uh, you're actually substituting things that are perhaps more vulnerable to supply shocks and are already in supply shocks in some cases. And then to your point, even if you could build all of those vehicles, you've still got to charge them every night. And uh, that, means you've got much more demand on the electric grid and you know where are you, how are you going to produce that energy they're going to let us build a fleet of nuclear reactors all over the country the left is totally against that so the question then is you know how do you you know how do you shift uh an energy source from you know an oil based for a transportation fleet to something that's electricity based uh, you know without a source to generate the electricity. And so, you know, they've got a lot of practical problems. You know, you look at what the administration is actually proposing, you know, their current rule that they've put in for fuel efficiency uh, from the EPA and the DOT requires each manufacturer to have 17% of their sales electric vehicles for model year 2026, which, you know, that's like three years from now. 
I, I don't see how that's possibly uh, realistic. I think they're going to have major, major problems. And if they don't withdraw that rule between now and then, if that stays in effect, word what's going to happen is uh, the manufacturers are going to have to restrict the supply of internal combustion engine vehicles because they're only going to be allowed to sell, you know, five or six times as many of those as they sell of the electrics to keep that 17%. And so what's going to happen is the price of regular cars is going to go haywire because you're going to have a huge shortage of them and, and you know, pickup trucks and so forth. And so uh, I think the, the you know, it, this is an administration that only lives on paper. They don't live in the real world. They don't actually look at the implications of the policies that they're putting in. And you get ridiculous things like all these quotes from our transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, who says, uh, you know, if you can't afford uh, gasoline, buy an electric car. And this is the kind of stuff we're getting from this administration. So they, I think, are really out of touch with reality. And uh, unfortunately, if their regulations stay in place, they're going to make these the they're going to make the strain on people a lot worse. Because uh, you know, if you think buying a car is tough now, and it is because of the chip shortage, uh, you know, imagine a few years if the manufacturers are required to have seventeen percent of the cars they sell be electric. It's going to be pretty bad. Well, you've come right into exactly the point where I was. We've landed right on the same uh, airstrip here. I, I feel it's a real big problem. It's a hoax. It's a ticking time bomb. But what worries a lot of us, and this fits into, I think, our subject of taxes and inflation, the price of gasoline and many people who talk to me here on the show, they suspect some of the skepticism about this administration is deliberately being driven up to drive us away from the internal combustion engine. I mean, that's a horrible thing to think that your leadership would actually put your uh, the people they govern in a kind of a precarious position like that. But they don't show any interest in opening up drilling or alleviating the price or um, what's your comment or your thoughts on that? Well, look, one of the first thing the first thing this president did when he took office is he said uh, he canceled the Keystone Pipeline and he said we're going to cancel all lease sales uh, for oil and gas on federal lands and waters. And, and that was illegal. Uh, it was struck down in court and a judge ordered you, ordered them to resume lease sales. And, you know, they kind of made this big point of, you know, look, we're opening lease sales again. We're not anti oil and gas. Um, and then the same day, one of the, one of their advisors in the White House, Gina McCarthy, uh, went on MSNBC. And I guess they think that nobody sees MSNBC except liberals, but she went on MSNBC and she said, uh, you know, we only did that to comply with the judge, but uh, we're never going to actually allow another drop of oil or gas to be produced in, in these federal lands and waters. We're as committed to the ban as we ever have been. So, and I hope someone printed that transcript and filed it with the court uh, because, you know, this is, to your point, you know, sometimes they pay lip service to, oh, we want to lower the price, we want to increase production because they get that politically they need to say and do that, but they're so ideologically committed to this idea of ending the internal combustion engine, switching everything over to electric vehicles, that their actual policies haven't changed. And they're totally against domestic production. Uh, and, and by the way, Ward, it's not just the usual stuff of like messing with lease sales through interior and EPA regulations. What's even more insidious with this administration is the way they're using the financial system to make it impossible to get financing for oil and gas projects. And so, you know, normally when the price rises like this, you'd see the rig count shoot through the roof and you'd see a lot of new exploratory drilling and see a lot of new production coming online because that's the natural market reaction to when the prices are high. We're seeing a little bit of that, but it's extremely muted. It's not what you would expect economically. And what I'm being told by a lot of these independent producers is uh, there's no financing out there. Nobody on Wall Street will touch oil and gas because they don't want to get their ESG or their DEI score knocked down. They don't want BlackRock disinvesting from them. They don't want the White House criticizing them. They don't want the SEC coming down on them. And so um, a lot of the sort of the thumb on the scale against energy has now moved from sort of the environmental regulators, although those are still there, to using the financial system to make it impossible to produce oil and gas. It's a very insidious, diabolical, you run out of adjectives here to, uh, to describe. They're fully committed to uh, this, and it has to do, got to do, because we know that fuel prices are fundamentally correct I'm wrong, the big driver of inflation. Well, so, they're, they're, you know, I think the, the main driver of inflation is always 
too much money creation. And Federal Reserve policy uh, has been to massively expand the balance sheet, expand the, the money supply. Uh, they also, people forget at the beginning of COVID, the Federal Reserve got rid of the reserve requirement. And so banks can essentially create unlimited money uh, as well. And, you know, the spending on the, that the federal government has done, the $6 trillion of extra spending since COVID started, that's more or less all been financed through Federal Reserve purchases of treasuries, which is to say through created money, uh, through the expansion of the balance sheet. And so we've got this massive amount of money creation. I think that's the principal driver. The, the additional pain, uh, you know, the, the additional pain that comes from these bad energy policies is actually uh, on top of inflation, which is to say, you know, just the money supply growing, which makes everything more expensive. Energy is making things even more expensive than just the increase in monetary terms. So, you know, we've got prices rising, not just with the general price level, but we've got real prices rising even above that for anything that has energy as an input, uh, which is basically, you know, any manufactured product, anything has to be grown, shipped or manufactured. And so um, it's sort of a double whammy. We've had, you know, very loose monetary policy, which uh, it has allowed for the massive government spending that we've seen. And that's been raised the price of everything just by creating a lot more dollars. But then we've also had these aggressive anti-energy policies kind of layered on top of that. So, you know, it's hard to sort of attribute, you know, what, you know, did to what the main driver is. I would still probably say the main driver is all the trillions of uh, dollars of money created out of thin air by the Fed, but the energy policy certainly hasn't helped, uh, and it's been layered on top of that. So we've got everything in this administration pointing in the direction of higher prices, it's not just one thing. Tom and Phil Kirpin, President of American Commitment, and uh, we're going to open a phone line up at the bottom of the hour after the sponsor. We're going to try see if we get any concerns off the. We'll see how it goes, but uh, we're concerned. Uh, this topic today is on everybody's mind. Saw a poll the other day, Phil, that said the two things that are really inflation and political division. And um, political division figures into what we're talking about here because the other, the, the Biden crowd, for lack of a better term, is uncompromising. It's ideologically driven. Uh, the party's been taken over by the radical left, and no one seems to be able to drag them out of the picture and reach back. The old time guys talk about, well, in the old days, we used to be able to reach across the aisle. Uh, we really since Obama. All I've seen since Obama, and it's gotten worse. I don't know how you see it from where you are there in D.C., if it's um, fairly accurate. Well, you know, I'm always a little bit skeptical of bipartisanship i'm not you know some people think that because something's bipartisan it's like inherently good um i i, I like there was a famous quote from pj o'rourke the uh humorist libertarian humorist who died a couple of years ago and he said something like you know when something is described as bipartisan it's a larger than usual swindle on the american public and so you know i i tend to be uh, i i'm not sure that it's necessarily a bad thing if uh, there are, is more suspicion between the parties, because when they do all agree, it tends not to be a great thing for the American people. And I'll tell you, one of the things I really worry about on energy right now is you've got industry groups calling for higher energy taxes, including the oil and gas majors themselves. Uh, the American Petroleum Institute, which is like you know Shell and BP and Exxon, you know, they're actually calling for a carbon tax. They want the government to tax their customers. They want to be the tax collectors for the government. And I think that's insane uh, and disturbing. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to have a bipartisan thing where Republicans go along with some insane, terrible energy policy, it's probably going to be because businesses were for it. And they said, oh, see, no, we're being reasonable. The industry wants it. This is the, you know, better approach than whatever else. And so, um I don't think the Democrats can do what they want to do on energy, which is essentially get to the end of fossil fuels and, uh, and ban them no matter what it costs. I don't think they can do that on a purely partisan basis. They kind of tried that under Obama. They had big majorities in the House and Senate. They tried to do their cap and trade thing. Uh, they barely got it through the House and it, they, they didn't even get it to a vote in the Senate. And they had 60 senators back then. I think that the way this happens, if it happens, 
is they convince a bunch of Republicans to put their fingerprints all over it and you know jump off the cliff together. And so I think you know if we can, uh, and that's why I think conservatives have a good chance to stop this stuff because you know Democrats don't really care what we say, but Republicans sometimes do. And so if we can kind of tell them, don't even think about it, no matter what industry is telling you, do not put higher energy taxes on the American people. Period. Uh, then maybe we can prevent it from happening. But I, I, I'm not I'm not so sure that. Uh, you know, the end of bipartisanship is a bad thing. I think it, it might be a positive. I think you may have a point. I'm certainly listening to what you're saying. On Tell us a little bit about this business roundtable that you've written about. I bet you not one person on the street has any list as it pertains to this issue we're talking about. Well, business roundtable is like um, a group of corporate CEOs, not just from one sector, but basically across the whole economy. So all the big companies, their CEOs are in it. So you look it up and it's like, you know, Coca-Cola and American Airlines and Amazon and whatever. I mean, it's like all the big CEOs of all the major companies are in this group called Business Roundtable. And, you know, typically they've, uh, you know, they're sort of middle of the road. They've sometimes been helpful. Like when they, they helped us push for corporate tax reform, sometimes they're not helpful. Uh, but you know, they put out this plan a few weeks ago to, so, you know, they called it their plan to, in, to lower energy prices and to increase American energy, something like that. And it has a bunch of good things in there. It has some ridiculous things like they want even more subsidies for renewables and whatever. Uh, but the craziest thing is, I think like number six in their plan is tax carbon. I was like, okay, you, you want, you're, you're putting out a plan saying you're, the point of the plan is to lower energy costs. And one of the points you have in your plan is to put a tax on energy. Now, I don't see how taxing something is ever going to make it less expensive. So, you know, I, I just think that the the climate change issue has now become part of the constellation of wokeness or political correctness, whatever you want to call it. And corporate America thinks they have to be on board with some version of doing something. And they've decided, I think, really incredibly stupidly that, you know, the Democrats are, are going to be the regulation guys, and maybe we can convince the Republicans to be the tax guys, even though the entire success of the Republican brand, going back to Reagan, is they're the guys who won't raise your taxes. You've got all these business community people trying to tell them, you know, no, no, well, just you do the carbon tax, and, uh, you know, that, that'll solve global, uh, climate change, and then, you know, the Democrats will take all the regulations off, and what they don't understand is you'll, it will never be instead of any of the, the regulatory things. If you did a tax, it would be in addition to all of that. Uh, and, you know, the people who pay it, which is me and you and everybody listening, would be pretty angry at whoever put it in. And so the idea that it's some moderate, bipartisan, whatever is insane. And, you know, I, I think the, um, the, the business community is incredibly out of touch with, you know, voters and their customers and regular, whatever you want to describe us as consumers, voters, taxpayers, uh, they're incredibly out of touch when they advocate uh, that an element of our energy policy should be higher taxes on fossil fuels. They certainly seem quick to come um, to any kind of negativity from the woke community. Um, they're so gun shy. They're so intimidated by losing a sale from these people. Uh, many of us keep hoping they'll band together and push back and because after all, um, but they're always concerned about the bottom line. And so they feel if woke will bottom line, then they'll cave into woke, even if it doesn't make any sense. There's a tournament, of, a tournament, for example, from New Jersey over to uh, Oklahoma is a perfect example in, in many ways, don't you think? I mean, there's no reason to do that. Uh, the guys at the PGA got nervous because the woke said, well, we're going to do whatever at the PGA. Uh, and so, oh, oh we got we to we move instead of just say, okay, go do yourself across the street, but we're going to play golf. No, they didn't say it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think the sports leagues have been some of the very worst uh, at not standing up to the left. And, you know, I mean, they, maybe the best example was Major League Baseball moving the All-Star game out of Atlanta because of... Uh, Definitely. You know, because of the voter integrity law in Georgia. And they moved it to Colorado, which I think, uh, you know, I don't think has, you know, any more liberal laws uh, on voting really than Georgia. Maybe they have more mail, vote by mail, I guess. But, uh, 
you know, then what happens? They had a primary in Georgia, they had an all-time record turnout. And she'd say, okay, well, what, they should apologize, right? I mean, what, what are you, you know, under this, under this law that they said was going to suppress turnout, they just had a record turnout. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it. Talking with Phil Kirkman, American Commitment, who has been in that group of thinkers that he's a president of, examines many issues from, well, sobriety. Let's use that word view of what's going on rather than one intoxicated by an ideology driven a party that uh, has wrapped itself around positions. I'm still amazed at the uh, fact that there's been a leak at the Supreme Court uh, oh, it's gone public and said it's destroyed the court forever. Uh, we no longer failed. There's a lot of truth to what he's saying, Phil, and and uh, it's all part of a plan uh, to undermine um, unbiased, if you will, although we don't really have that institutions and each other against, uh, you know, the checks and balances. Um, they're really. It's, many people I talk to think so. Well, you know, I think that there's a I think there's a major element of the left that intentionally wants to trash our legal system, trash our institutions in our country. And this, you know, this goes back to a movement started at Harvard, I don't know, 30 years ago called Critical Legal Studies. And then, uh, you know, there's this it's actually it's interesting because there's uh, there was this, you know, very ivory tower sort of university debate among, you know, kind of the critical legal studies guys that just said, you know, destroy everything, tear down the system, trash the system. And then they, they're sort of their colleagues developed uh, sort of a, an offshoot that disagreed with them called critical race theory, where they said, no, it's not enough to just trash everything. You have to be explicitly race based in the way you do it. Um, and, you know, this was this like ridiculous left wing academic debate in the 90s. And now it's like our life in this country. <laughs> now it's like now it's like these obscure, you know, these obscure crazy theories now motivate huge numbers of people and uh, actually have huge purchase in our society at the elite level. And you know, I think that you know, up until recently, everyone wherever they are in the political spectrum would agree that you need to have a strong constitutional system. You need to have a legal system that that's predictable and that people respect. And you know, you could sort of disagree about. The content of it left and right. Uh, but now we're dealing with a left that really does want to tear down our institutions. And they don't see it as a bad thing that there's a destruction of trust at this room. They say, great, because we should trash it, we should destroy it. And um, it's very dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. And, uh, you know, I think that most voters, even most Democratic voters, do not agree with it. If you can explain to them that it's what's going on, which is why they'll sort of deny that they that they have such extreme views. But uh, I think that the the left at the elite level, uh, the media and the elected officials, have become captive of true true radicalism, uh, and it's in, it's an enormous problem uh, and challenge uh, for us to deal with, but it's also a huge opportunity, right? Because it means that if you can explain that and show that to people, the vast majority of normal people, people who would have been Democrats their whole life will say, no, I'm not in favor of that. And so it presents an opportunity as well. Well, to Phil Kirpin, we're at the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a little break here for our sponsors. I'm looking at the Facebook chat for questions as well. We're going to be opening up the phone line and we'll put the phone line number up on the screen in a minute. And if you have a chat question, uh, you'll be able to actually talk to both me and Phil. And it'll be, of course, answered by our production crew. Uh, so we're going to take a break just for a moment. And uh, we'll be back on the Ward Scott Files in just one second. This is Ward Scott. And I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, Large Enough to Serve You, Small Enough to Care. Melvin Law the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, 
Thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Board, that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. A warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Achtung, Achtung. The papers are not in order. Step out of the line and report to the inspection station. We are going to search your belongings. Mach schnell! All right, welcome back to Ward Scott Files. We rebooted uh, our internet connection on uh, Phil Kirpin's end. He was getting a little bit of intermittent uh, distribution of this uh, feed. I think we're fine now, and we apologize for that, but I think we were able to nevertheless communicate pretty well with you, but we will summarize for you uh, the points of what uh, we think we were talking about, if we recall it, and um, <laughs> I hope we still can. Plus, we have our phone line open, which is 352-389-3997. So if you would like to ask a question, uh, we'll take it. You'll be in the chat waiting room for a moment when production answers it. Uh, Phil, I think what we talked about was basically the fiasco of uh, the folly, if you will, or the hoax, any number of words I suppose works, but this electric car thing is where we started, where uh, really uh, we don't really get away from the need for fossil energy by converting to electric cars. In fact, we may increase the need for fossil energy because uh, of the demand and recharging at the home and, and, and among other places. So that also only seems to exist by virtue of subsidies from the government, uh, which are very iffy and problematic and fraught with peril. And furthermore, uh, we also have a kind of uh, a deaf ear to where the people are, a disconnect, if you will, uh, between the government and the people they govern. They're not hearing the low um, rates of the president and tanked in the bottom. They're not hearing the cries for help from um, the in inflation, they continue to print the money, they contribute this hemorrhage of money, really is a better word for it. And we're left being concerned about a couple of things uh, that a poll we, uh, showed us the other day uh, is on your minds, and that's inflation and political division. And I, I guess Phil and I want to... Who is that? Yeah, let's let Mark in. Hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. Thank you for calling in, sir. Hey. Okay, Ward, good morning. You know, one thing that's been uh, perturbing me ever since uh, Biden took office, and uh, we've had this real uh, shortage of fertilizer, I'd, I'd like to say for the un uninitiated out there that uh, nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium are just a very few of the elements that actually go in to a well-balanced fertilizer on the field, especially for corn, soybeans, wheat, and stuff. You have zinc, sulfur, iron, magnesium, manganese, cobalt, and calcium are the rest of the stuff. And, and the idiot up in D.C. that come on and said, let's use more compost, well, there's a good reason for using compost because it actually uh, gives you back a little bit of nitrogen and a few nutrients but not at the levels the average farmer uses out there because they measure it in tons per acre and in uh, parts per million, you know, basically per square foot. And uh, if you don't properly treat the cow manure and test the cow manure and chicken litter, 
you can absolutely cause your soil to go sodic, that is salt, in your ground. And if you put too much of that in there, your organic matter gets too high, and then you can't grow anything. And I just thought I'd bring that out for all the people out there that like to garden and farm and compost. Thank you so much, Mark, for calling in, and thanks for being a strong supporter of the show. Mark, we nickname, of course, Phil Plantation Mark. He's the real deal. He's in Virginia, just south of you, uh, out in the the country, um, living off the land. But he's also very much tuned into the political world because the political world, as he just demonstrated, affects everything down to chicken manure. (laughs) You know, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the... uh... We, we talk about oil, you know, most of us who are not in agriculture think about uh, fuel, but of course, oil is also, you know, the key input in fertilizer. And so, you know, they're absolutely getting hammered right now. And, um, you know, he's, he's right. You can't, you can't replace it. It's not replaceable. You can't replace it and have the kinds of yields that we've relied on to produce the food that feeds this country. And so uh, it's a major problem. And, you know, it's another aspect of just the prices of everything skyrocketing of course because uh fertilizer costs go up the farmer's got no choice but to charge more and then you know that gets passed down through the supply chain you're paying more for food on top of the you know all the other inflation drivers and on top of that we're trying to make some of our equipment uh supposedly the popular item is going to be the electric f-150 my golly the ford is the most popular f-150 is the most popular truck in america and they want to make it electric. I got to tell you, my friend, I've got an F-150. I live on rural land. I have cattle. And I don't want to have to rely on charging my F-150. Uh, that's not something that I want to plug into my house uh, uh, outlet. And uh, and then on top of that, the tractors, uh, uh, you know, diesel is, I, I don't know, where do we stop? I don't, I don't know if they hear us, Phil. You know, I think when we get to this, if this mandate they have that 17% of electric, uh, 17% of vehicles sold are electric, if that mandate stays in for model year 2026, you know, the market always uh, innovates and adapts around idiotic government policies. So I think what you might see is you might see some dealers say, you know, if you buy a new truck, we'll throw in this electric vehicle for free for you so they can hit their percentage numbers. Or something like that. I mean, I, I, I uh, to your point, uh, I don't think there's going to be a lot of demand uh, for the, you know, the electric pickup trucks. There, you know, there's a company called Rivian that there's, you know, that the, that's what they they're just an electric truck company. So I mean, there are a lot of people that are betting on this. And you know, look, if they can deliver a product that's got the that's you know that's got the power and it's got the torque and people want it, and okay, great, more power to you. But for government to mandate it for government to put thumbs on the scale, for government to subsidize, uh, I think it's a huge mistake. Yeah, well, it's um, probably, what do you think the chances really are? This is another thing we've talked about. You're there close to people, you guys study. I'm not so confident that we'll take back Congress. I, I, I have my fingers crossed because there are all sorts of ways to, shall we say, manipulate the vote that we've experienced or somehow manipulate the popular narrative. And I know you work hard at educating the public. I work hard at educating the public. But if it weren't for the price of gas and the scarcity of food, and now we have the baby formula thing, I don't think much of this would have bothered the public. The baby formula shortage. What is that all about from your studies, Phil? Well, the baby formula issue... um is a consequence of an extremely overregulated market, which makes it very difficult to have uh, new entrants or new competitors. It also prevents foreign competition. So there, there's uh, very, very few imports are ever approved. And so we've got, as a consequence of our regulatory structure, really two major manufacturers, uh, Similac and Abbott. And uh, there was a whistleblower that told the government there was a problem at Abbott's main plant and the government did nothing. And then there were a few instances of kids getting sick and they became public. And so the government panicked and said, shut down the plant. And uh, when you have a situation where you have very limited suppliers because of regulatory barriers to entry and, uh, you know, a block on importation, and then you shut down one of the plants of your two uh, competitors, you cause a major shortage right away. And, you know, I think, you know, it, you know first, first of all, I think 
we shouldn't have all these over-the-top regulations. And by the way, a lot of the rules we have in the U.S. that keep the European formula out are like, you know, we don't want their healthier product. We want like a oil-based U.S. product. You know, so it's not even like, it's not even, the differences are actually probably like our product is inferior <laughs> in terms of health, but they want to keep it. So it's very strange. I, I mean, it's, you know, probably regulatory capture by those existing companies, but uh, it, it's a, sort of a brittle market structure to start with because of government policies, making it hard to have entrance and keeping foreign competition out. And then, you know, when you have that, the FDA better not make any mistakes, right? Because if the FDA makes a mistake, you're going to have a catastrophe. And they made a massive mistake in this case. Uh, they didn't act early when they had early information. They could have prevented, uh, you know, a plant shutdown. And then, of course, you know, when they had, when they when they did have, you know, when the thing gets public because some kids are getting sick, then they overreact and they shut down a plant completely instead of just putting in some quality control and, uh, you know, so forth. And so, uh, you know, I think the problem with baby formula is that uh, the FDA has far too large a role um, in terms of overregulation, preventing uh, there from being more competitors. And they're not good at doing that role. They botched it. And so they kind of put themselves in charge, made everything rely on them, and then they, they failed, essentially. And so that's, that's my take on it. And I think that rather than this crazy, like Biden saying, I'm Defense Production Act, I'm going to order you to produce more. I mean, the issue is not that they haven't been ordered to produce more, it's that they were ordered to shut down. Um, what they should have done, in my judgment, is they should have waived the prohibition on imports from any country that has high safety standards, like any of the European developed countries. They should have just said, you know, there are no restrictions, bring it in. Instead, they, they blocked shipments. And so uh, I, I think that you know, they've done almost everything wrong. Uh, and you know, that's what we did. And, and by the way, Ward, this is neither here nor there, but I, I've, I don't know if you've seen these photos, but, you know, all these stores that are limiting purchasing of formula to try to prevent one person from getting all of it. They've got like, you know, limit three boxes, limit four boxes. Uh, because you cannot limit the number of purchases uh, on the federal EBT card, they have to, welfare recipients can buy everything and non-welfare people get restricted to just buying really? you. So that's another interaction with another government policy that has our result. So the welfare people get all the baby formula they want. If they can find a story where the shelves aren't yeah. empty, yeah, they're not going to be subject to the limited number. Amazing. I didn't know that. Learn something every day. Right. Um, yeah, we have a comment here. Florida once led the world providing minerals for the fertilizer industry, but phosphate mines. Um, yeah, phosphate has been a dirty word here in Florida, Phil. And it's all about contamination of water and and um, uh, that sort of thing. So uh, I don't know how that's going to be reconciled. That, that uh, the fossil fuel society. There's a lot of us predicting now that there's going to be a lot of serious poverty. Now we've got a long way to go to have true po poverty in this country. I think we're not talking about poverty about a decreased standard of living well look i mean we are experiencing a real decline in standards of living because wages are not wages are growing something like four percent and inflation is eight percent so if the price of everything is going up twice as fast as your income's rising your standard of living is falling in real terms and so uh, we are experiencing that right now in this country but to your point um you know, we're a very wealthy country, very, very wealthy. And so by international standards, even our poorest states are richer than, you know, most advanced countries. And so, you know, we would, we would have a long, long way to fall to become a poor country, to have real material poverty on a wide scale. Uh, that said, it can happen. You know, it, it's not impossible. Venezuela used to be a rich country and it became a poor country in a couple of decades of socialists being in charge. And so this idea that, well, we're so rich that it, you know, it can't ever go away. Uh, we can't ever become poor. It, it can happen faster than you think if you put the wrong people in charge and they do the wrong things. We've seen it happen. Talking with Phil Kerp and he's uh, still breaking up a little bit. We're getting the message through, though, Phil. Uh, yeah, it started messing up again. I don't know. Maybe I need to go. It's uh, I don't know what's happening with my internet. Well, we'll, we'll make it through. We're, we're really getting a replies. People are listening, so they're bearing with us. I think everybody sort of understands uh, things about the internet happen and all. But we were talking today about, I was at another meeting this morning, the, the of Zoom. Boy, has it ever changed the world. 
Uh, we've got a friend of mine I was talking to over breakfast. Uh, never goes um, to court anymore. Everything's on Zoom. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, where were we before Zoom? So let's talk about what I'm leading up to here is a little bit of COVID data. There's so much misleading information out there. And I started to study this a little bit more carefully now that COVID has been a couple, three years out. And there's been some hindsight analysis and it's put the actual uh, situation into a sharper do you have a handle uh, uh, on or have you looked um, myths versus reality or I guess that's the way to look at it. Have you done that at American Commitment? Yeah, actually, I did a um, I did a paper for the National Bureau of Economic Research with Casey Mulligan and Steve Moore about, I don't know, a month or two ago now, where we looked at the pandemic performance of all 50 states and we ranked them on three different areas, mortality, education and economic performance. And then we did kind of a composite score as well. And, you know, what, what we found is that uh, there was really only one place where lockdowns prevented mortality, uh, and that was Hawaii. And that's probably because they're an island and they can actually have effective border control and they have a very different uh, situation than pretty much everywhere else. But everywhere else, uh, there was no relationship between the extent to which economic activity was restricted and drawn back in lockdown and uh, the actual outcomes in terms of mortality. And so it really was not even something where you could say, you know, it saved lives at X million dollars per life. Hawaii, you could say they saved lives at about $10 million per life. So it was a massive economic cost but th there did seem to be lives saved. The rest of the country, it's essentially infinite. Uh, there, there were, there's no relationship there suggesting that there was actually benefit. So an, in, an infinite amount of money was spent per life saved because lives weren't really saved. Uh, but what these measures did uh, was impose massive economic and educational hardship on top of the mortality from the virus, which you still got anyway, which you weren't able to prevent. And the states that had the best overall performance were the ones that kind of figured this out earlier than the others and harm themselves less economically and less educationally. And on our composite score, Florida is the only large state that got an A. Uh, the other large states all did pretty poorly, uh, especially on education. They had very extensive school closures in, in almost all of the large states. The exception is uh, Texas also was pretty good on keeping schools open, but Texas was not nearly as good economically as Florida. And Texas, for whatever reason, I think maybe border related, had pretty high uh, COVID deaths, they're among the highest. Um, they, there's the, 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 pattern, the patterns that emerge on COVID deaths have very little to do with policy, and they seem to have a lot more to do with geography. And so the Northeast, which was hit so hard in the first wave, does pretty poorly just because the other states never quite all the way caught up. And then the other area that did really badly was the Southwest. And uh, in particular, Arizona and New Mexico both had a lot of COVID deaths, which is interesting because they had totally opposite policy approaches, right? Arizona was a pretty short lockdown, uh, pretty open state. New Mexico had one of the longest lockdowns, longest school closures, longest, longest mask mandates. And they're both very high COVID death states, which tells you those policies really didn't have much to do with it. Maybe what did is uh, they've got a lot of Indian reservations, which tend to have poor health system quality. They've got a lot of border areas. And, you know, one of the things that I haven't really looked into, we need to look at this for a, a follow-up paper, but the border areas of uh, the Southwest of California, New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas had very high COVID deaths. And so I think that Part of that might have been kind of like if you're an American national who lives in Mexico and you get COVID, you're not going to stay and go to a Mexican hospital. You're going to go home immediately. So I think they sort of effectively had a larger population than the denominators we use for those states because you had Americans coming back. And then I also think they probably had a lot of foreign nationals, Mexicans who had the same thinking of like, I'm sick. I'm not going to go to a Mexican hospital. We're going across the border to try to get into there. And then I think those all end up at the death count. So I need to figure out a little more what happened in the Southwest. But, you know, it's pretty clear to me that the policy interventions that were put forward for COVID uh, were massively harmful, had little, if any, benefit. Uh, and the states that are really going to uh, have the worst long-term outcomes coming out of this are the ones that undermined a generation of education that kept kids out of school for an entire calendar year and uh, it kept them disrupted with masks after that, including up to now in some places. And I think that the approach that Florida took uh, is really going to be vindicated as being, uh, you know, not perfect by any stretch, but a lot better than what most places did. 
couple of questions have come up. A, uh, in your research, do uh, masks seem in uh, any significance? And um, did the inoculations help the uh, vaccines? Well, I think the, um, you know, the, the, the only debate in the literature on masks uh, that the, the only real debate in the literature on masks is whether the effect is zero or very, very small. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that you can discern, you can read the literature in a way to find that there's something like a 10% of transmission reduction effect if everyone wears a mask. Um, you know, you can look at a different set of studies and uh, look at statistical significance and say it's, it's zero. Uh, to me, when you're talking about an effect size that's that small, and there was one study uh, out of Bangladesh that went crazy about they found like a 10% effect size. And then you look in the study and it was essentially, they, they found a reduction of 20 cases across 300 villages in two months. Okay. And that's, uh, they tried, they, they touted this in all the headlines as masks work. To me, if the effect size is that small, it's not remotely worth disrupting regular life and uh, people being able to have a sense of normalcy and have normal social emotional interactions, normal development. So I think the effect size on masks is something between zero and maybe 10%. Uh, to me, that's so minimal, it's not remotely worth uh, imposing on anyone. And I think it's kind of silly to do voluntarily as well. But you know, people can live their own lives. I, you know, I, I, they can decide as long as they don't impose it on me, you know, do what you want to do. So that's my view on that. Uh, the vaccines do still appear to have some benefit for people who are over age 60 on reducing hospitalization and death. Uh, but they now pretty clearly have no benefit on transmission or the risk of becoming a case. And in fact, the CDC's own data now shows the vaccine effectiveness for symptomatic infection, just a regular case, not a hospitalization or a death, um, goes negative at around six or seven months after the second shot. And so people who are uh, vaccinated are now more likely to become a case uh, than people who are unvaccinated. And so any case, any argument for mandates should be completely gone at this point. Uh, I think the virus has changed a lot. Uh, the vaccines were really good for the original virus, but the virus has changed a lot. The vaccines have not. They're now a pretty poor match uh, for the virus strain that's circulating. And so you're seeing very little effectiveness. Uh, that said, the good news is the strain of the virus that's circulating now is much weaker than the original strain. And so it's much more like a cold. And uh, you know, for, for the vast majority of people, it's not that serious if you get the current uh, Omicron version of that is circulating. But uh, I think that uh, the Trump administration produced a vaccine in absolute record time. Uh, and the vaccine worked really well for the virus as it was circulating then. And the virus changed and the Biden administration never changed the vaccine. And so we now have a vaccine that's a poor match uh, for the virus that's circulating. And um, I, I don't, you know, I think they're going to try to put a new version of the vaccine out for the fall uh, that's updated for what is circulating, but it's not clear to me how they're testing that, how they're validating it. And so I think the uh, FDA under Biden, uh, you know, they've gone from warp speed to, I don't know, standstill, snail speed. I don't really understand what they're doing there. Instead, they're just approving more shots of the vaccine that doesn't really work for the virus that doesn't really exist anymore, uh, even for kids yesterday. And I, I just, you know, it's, I think the vaccine policy has really gone off the rails. Well, you make a very good point about the virus adapting faster than we can. And it, it, it's just one more item that, if you will, I can sleep with the switch on. Uh, you know, there's other, finally, I guess we can conclude, we should maybe talk about, um, you know, Biden yanked us out of Afghanistan abruptly left a lot of our financial investment rotting right there for the other people to pick up and use. All of our military equipment, as I understand it, is just there in, in, um, in the way and be, will be used by that which we were fighting. And now we're turning around doing the very same thing. I understand it's a different theater. I understand. Um, but I don't know if dollars can be the proxy. What, and people are complaining that we're dumping that much money into that, but we're not dumping into our own hardships here. Any comments or studies on that, Phil? Well, I mean, to me, um, I'm not a big foreign policy guy, so I don't really know if we should be financing this war or not. I'm not a big foreign policy guy, but the, the, to me, the idea that we would spend another $40 billion and not 
cut forty billion dollars somewhere else to pay for it. Just put it on the put it on the old national credit card. Have the Federal Reserve print up the money, uh, add to inflation. I find that outrageous from a fiscal standpoint. And uh, you know, Rand Paul uh, was trying to get them to pay for it. And, you know, both parties shot him down. And yeah, I just you know, we've got. They, I think they. I think in in the uh, you know when they were shaking down the schools, when the unions early in the Biden administration, when the unions were saying we're not opening schools anywhere unless you send us another hundred twenty billion dollars on top of the fifty billion that we already got. Um, you know, one of the things I pointed out then was it's going to take years and years and years to spend this money. So they're claiming they can't open without this money, but the money's not going to be spent anyway, even if they pass it. So this is just a shakedown. They're lying. It's a ransom, essentially. And you know, I saw a, I saw an article yesterday that only seven percent of the hundred twenty five billion of uh, COVID bailout money for schools has been spent, which means you know they're sitting on, you know, they're sitting on one hundred fifteen billion dollars or whatever it is of that. You can't take you can't reduce that unspent amount by 40 billion if the most important thing in the world is financing this war in Ukraine. So I just think, and there are a million other examples. I mean, I, I don't, to me, if this is really something we should do, um, then they ought to pay for it by cutting other spending, not just through money creation. Uh, so that's the part that I find most offensive about it. And then of course, you know, the other thing, and, and I know I, you're probably work up about this because all the conservatives I know are, uh, you know, the entire Trump administration, he wanted $4 billion for the border wall. And they said, that's an impossibly large amount. We could never have $4 billion. And then when they want to do $40 billion to defend Ukraine's borders, it's like, yeah, no problem. Put it on the national credit card. So yeah, I think it shows you how uh, dishonest, uh, you know, the media and politicians are when it comes to uh, the cost of things. I've been watching the president of Hungary. He's put his foot down and said, we're not going to do what the dysfunctional West does. We're protecting our borders and we're not going to uh, speak out of both sides of our mouth, if you will. The point you just made, uh, have no border policy uh, at the, uh, uh, in, the, in the country and yet uh, go over and get uh, engaged, as you point out. What is eight times? Uh, how many times are you doing to 40? <laughs> at least four or five times, you know? It's, uh, you know, the, the border situation, uh, I, I, I don't know if. I don't know if people understand how tightly connected it is to what we're seeing with drug overdoses, but we had, we had 100,000 people die of drug overdoses last year. And the whole nature of the drug epidemic has changed in the last couple of years because of the massive amount of fentanyl that's coming across our southern border. Um, it used to be that a drug overdose happened because you messed up and you took too much. You know, you took some huge amount of heroin or cocaine or whatever it was, and then you, you know, someone would die. Now... Any street drug, even if it's pot, any street drug, there's a chance it's laced with fentanyl and you're going to die. I mean, just the, the danger level has become completely different. Um, and, you know, I hope people explain this to their kids. Like there is no safe street drug period anymore because you don't know what's in there and it could have fentanyl and even a tiny amount, you die. But, you know, if we cared about it, and by the way, the deaths are up much more in the black community than they are in white. So the liberals who claim to care so much about blacks, they're watching them die because they refuse to stop the fentanyl pouring over the southern border. Um, it's a massive problem and it hasn't gotten nearly the attention that it should, in my judgment. And the other thing it's done is, is created this uh, uh, gang world where these kids are you know, making money and getting involved in, in the business side of this and um, supplying it. And out here where we are, I-75 is a river of drugs. It's moving constantly. And some of my friends are on the drug interdiction team. You know, they stop what they can, uh, but you know, they don't begin to, to, and this is just one big artery out here, I-75 running north and south from, as you know, down in the southern part of the state all the way up uh, to, I think, Sault Ste. Marie. So, um, and all the, all, all the overpasses and things that get off there. So, now that's a whole nother story. I really appreciate you coming by today. We always have a great time. Phil Kirpin, as a regular guest on the Ward Scott Files, we really appreciate that. And uh, we uh, will, of course, um, put this uh, show out on wardscottfiles.com, Apple Podcasts, tune in, all the other places. I don't know, 30 some places, production knows where it goes. And we appreciate the call in uh, from Plantation Mark, who made the point that yes, the rural community uh, suffers too, and uh, the urban community that runs this country. I don't know if they have a rule ear at all around uh, uh, up there in the Oval Office at all. Uh, they're all city folk or 
college educated or I don't know what you'd call them, Phil, but uh, you deal uh, with them. That's why we got I call, I call them out of touch mostly. Uh, <laughs> I apologize for the internet issues. I will try to uh, resolve them before the next time. Uh, hey. uh, thanks for having me, Ward. Thank you, Phil. Well, we'll uh, have, hope you have a great weekend. Uh, we have uh, some things going on here in our community. You might want to tune in. We have the uh, regional softball tournament here, and uh, that's been a fun time for the people who like to see uh, women's sports. So have a great weekend. Warthog Command Center out.